What is the fascination with cults, and why do people join them? In appearance, they offer a utopian way of life, a community of belonging and purpose. But in reality, they can exert mind control and strip their members of free will. In the United States in the 1970s and early 80s, such religious groups were common, the majority of them peaceful and nonviolent. The 1971 cover of Time magazine featured the popular Jesus movement that was prevalent in parts of the country. My own dad told me stories about encountering so-called Jesus freaks with long hair and robes while hiking in Big Sur, California around that time. The Southwest United States, with its warm, dry desert climate, was especially desirable for these groups, including a place called Yuma, Arizona. Welcome to Yuma, Arizona, the sunniest city on earth, located on the banks of the Colorado River. Yvonne Peach, like most other transplants, moved here for the sun more than 40 years ago. In 1980, she was working at the historic Coronado Motor Hotel, a Spanish-style lodge built in 1938 with lumber from the old Southern Pacific Railroad. My husband's parents built it, so it's been in the family for 86 years. We have farmland all around us. We've had the desert, and then we have hills. From 19 and 20s on, people came to Yuma for the sun. We always have a season in the in the fall, you know, where winter visitors would come from the north and come down here and stay like six months or better. In the fall of 1980, there were indeed visitors. People Yvonne had never seen before in Yuma. They had long hair, carried burlap sacks, and walked through town in robes. The women wore white scarves. The men, cloth baby diapers tied around their heads. It just looked like a picture you can see in the Bible. I was working the front desk of the hotel uh, when I seen them. We had these huge big picture windows. I had seen them walking back and forth on 4th Avenue. Of course, they caught my eye because they were so different. Some of them were barefoot and some of them, I remember the cardboard. They had like cardboard tied on their feet with uh, burlap, rope-like. Mm. They were just walking, you know, walking on the road. I didn't know the name of them. I did know that they were a cult. The timing of Yvonne's sighting coincides with a key event in this story. Holly Marie Klaus, Dean and Tina's 10-month-old baby, was given to a church in Yuma in late 1980 by two mystery women who were part of a nomadic religious group. She was brought to a Yuma church sometime after her parents were killed. Women from a religious group left baby Holly at a church in Arizona. On the nomadic religious group possibly connected to the murders and baby Holly's initial disappearance now a 42-year-old mother of five living in Oklahoma. So what group did the women belong to? And is this group still in existence today? Months of speaking with sources led me to a group called the Christ Family. Religious experts say the Christ Family is a cult and that the group's practices are far outside the norms of traditional Christian denominations. And as I probed into the group's past, Former members and a current member emerged to tell me their stories. Everything was not as it seemed. What we thought was good and holy and true was actually very damaging. Maureen Clark joined the Christ family in 1978 when she was 20 years old and a married mother of two. Her book, In the Wind, 
which was first published in 2008, is a poignant firsthand account of her life with the group. After two years with the Christ family, Maureen was kidnapped in 1980 by people hired by her parents. She was driven to a deprogramming house in West Virginia, and then she eventually re entered life as she once knew it. From her home in Thunder Bay, Ontario, a city on the northwest side of Lake Superior, Maureen spoke with me about that time 40 years ago. I can't thank you enough for having the courage to do it. I appreciate that you are a truth seeker because that's important to me too to speak the truth and to, you know, to not <laughs> exaggerate or sensationalize. Maureen, is the Christ Family Group a cult? The Christ Family, I believe, was a very unique cult. We were taught how to perceive and process information coming in from the outside world, as well as our inner thought life. So we were taught how to think, how to speak, how to dress, eat, sleep. The finite mind and our emotions were the enemy and needed to be suppressed and controlled. So the Christ mind was to replace the finite mind. I've heard so many people past and present say, oh, this group's harmless. So the Christ family didn't believe in violence. We had reverence for all life. So yes, we were harmless in that sense. Yet there was emotional and mental harm that unknowingly had a ripple effect on many people for years to come. Families were torn apart, couples, children separated, the trauma of abandonment that the children went through. It affected everybody that they're in relationship with. The ripple effect is far reaching and very devastating. Maureen's involvement with the Christ family began with something pretty innocuous a knock on the door. A man who was a friend of ours came to my parents' home in a long white robe. I think I, I was doing dishes and then he comes and I didn't recognize him at first because his eyes were just like beams of light shining at me and all of a sudden I just felt so arrested by this person who seemed to be shiny. And then I recognized him, that he, he had been a, a, a friend of ours. At the time of this encounter with her friend Don, Maureen had just returned from a soul-searching trip to Peru with her husband and young daughter. A spiritual and also cerebral person by nature, Maureen was asking herself existential questions like, what is my calling in life? Why am I here? Don? with his shiny blue eyes and long white robe, drew her right in. He said Jesus is back on earth and he's calling you to follow. The Jesus her friend Don was referring to was the founder of the Christ family, a man by the name of Charles Franklin McHugh, a bearded recluse known to his followers as Lightning Amen. Amen was a former carpenter who went on a 40-day fast in California's Mojave Desert around 1970. As the story goes, he emerged from the desert claiming he was Christ reincarnated. When I met him, there was so much 
mysticism and so many stories that I had heard about him that I guess the mystical manipulation that was going on around this figure, I believed that he was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I had an experience where he read my mind, which confirmed it even more. He was kind and gentle. What did he look like? He had very shiny blue eyes. He was already getting older, so I guess his hair was graying and it was long. He just looked like a normal man, which he was. (laughs) Amen's followers referred to one another as brother and sister. They smoked marijuana, which they claimed was a God-given herb. They lived a nomadic lifestyle, traveling from city to city, in the wind, as they would say, preaching their message, and recruiting others. The Christ family had three major tenets. The first was no killing of any kind. No killing was not just that you didn't kill animals or um, you didn't kill people. No killing had layers to it. You didn't swear at someone or have anger towards someone in the way that's killing because that's a negative, you know, violent vibration. And also it meant to not be part of killing the animals because we were told that when you eat an animal that's been killed, there's fear involved. But most of the way animals are killed now is very violent. And then that fear vibration goes into the animal, goes into the meat. And then when you eat it, then it comes into you because it's frequency. So the other thing was we weren't even allowed to kill bugs or to swap mosquitoes if they were biting you. We just blew them off and said, go suck on grapes. So it was a completely stand for no violence at all. In your experience, did you ever see any kind of violent behavior? No, that would be going against the first key. The second tenant was no sex. I think it might have been part of the the control to keep you not close to someone. So Mm -hmm. um, you weren't allowed to have sex sexual relations or or to have anybody that's more special than anybody else. We were supposed to love everybody equally the way God loves us. The third tenant was no materialism. Members were forced to give up all worldly possessions. And there was one other defining feature. The group demanded such loyalty that children were expected to be given up by their parents. Children, Maureen said, were referred to as hobbits. Women having to give up their babies and children is a powerful testimony of mind control in the Christ family. We would never have done that on our own. The mother instinct to be overridden is evidence of mind control because that's such a powerful instinct in a person. They call it the mother bear, you know? So how did they view children? They viewed children as adults in little bodies, like a, a, a big soul in a little body. Why were children called hobbits? I believe it was because they were to be treated as adults in little bodies. 
The word comes from the series, The Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit books that many of us read back in the 70s. Everything's wrong with that because children need nurturing. They need touch. They need to be encouraged. They need to be taught how to behave. And they aren't adults. One of the most heart-wrenching things that you write about is the separation from your children. And I was hoping that you could, first of all, talk about your experience with what happened to you and your children. Hmm. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Oh, I'm sorry, Maureen. I'd like to say to all those children, like Holly, know that it was the hardest thing for your mother to do. Holly's story is, is very consistent with what the Christ family members did at that time. Children were given away, possessions were liquidated, and new converts hit the wind on a pilgrimage living in faith in white robes. Even all these years later, the subject of her own children was too painful for Maureen to speak of. But she was able to read to me this passage from her book. I felt so ashamed for having left my babies. I still felt a hollow, unbearable, empty ache for my children. I wanted to gather them in my arms and never let them go. I wanted to love them as a mother, these beautiful motherless children. I had missed them so much. I wasn't there when Saul took his first step or uttered his first words, or when they had hurt themselves and needed comforting. Could I have given them up, given my entire life, to follow a false Christ? Was I deceived? How could it be? Joe Simhart is a cult expert and author. He first encountered the Christ family in the 1970s. Where were you well, living at the time, and how did you come to meet them? I was living in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. I had moved there in 1975. I got involved in the cult seeking myself. There was a lot of cult-like activity and new age activity in Santa Fe at the time. I was a portrait artist on the plaza there. So the plaza was like a hub of, of tourist activity and, and a lot of different cults and preachers and whatever would show up on the plaza. And this group showed up uh, over a couple of years. And I, I naturally was curious about this kind of thing at the time. So I got to talk to them. I took some pictures and got to know the group a bit on a personal basis. What did they look like? What did they say? What were their mannerisms like? They tended to wear their hair long, wore white headbands, white robes, sash, barefoot, basically, like drab army blanket bedrolls that they hung over their shoulders. It was a very hippie, back-to-earth kind of a movement. The women didn't shave their body hair. They wore sunglasses. They smoked marijuana openly. They espoused it as a sacred herb. There was this feeling of camaraderie among them. They were very gentle in the way they approached people. In fact, people would come to them. They wouldn't go up and try to recruit people as such. Maybe may casually in mm -hmm. some cases. They didn't like to, to answer questions about their personal lives. They would turn that aside and 
they immediately begin discussing their religious philosophy. They wouldn't say much about their leader mm-hmm. initially. You had to kind of dig for that. They had this sense of spiritual mission that they were the new Christians and that their leader was Jesus reincarnated. These groups tend to allow people recruit themselves. So they present an attractive package, you know, dress the way they are, purporting to be uh, Christians and living this, this earth-friendly lifestyle. They hide a lot of the more difficult things about the group in the initial presentation. But people over a, a month or two might slowly recruit themselves. You know, They might meet with a group member for a day, not meet with them again for another week. So it isn't an intense process. There's there's almost like a choosing yourself in process into this trap, you know, with that people see as a mind trap or a psychosocial trap later. But th- there's th- this sort of easing into the group. The Bible is powerful. This story of Jesus has been worked and reworked and is very compelling. You know, it's about the afterlife. It's about sacrificing yourself for others. It turns authority upside down. It can... Um, appeal to anarchists and people that like anarchists, you know, so they might end up following an anarchist and end up in a group that's highly controlled and authoritarian, just like the society they were trying to leave, claim they're leaving the so-called system back in that day, which controls your life. And they end up joining a group, which is micromanaging their life in a much smaller way. They didn't have children. The basic rule of thumb is here, when you have a a group that, that, that claims to be highly spiritually connected and working toward their whatever ascension or mission, children just get in the way. Is this a group that you knew to be violent? No, I did not know anything about uh, any violent activity uh, uh, regarding the group. Stay with me. We'll be back after this short break. In my quest to learn more about the Christ family and find people who might have known Dean and Tina, I posted my name and contact information on an online forum for former members. Within a few days, I had some responses. One email came from a woman whose parents joined the group in the 1980s when she was a small girl. Unlike most children, she got to travel with the Christ family for a year and a half before she was put in the care of an uncle. The woman who asked that we call her MJ to protect her identity shared what she remembers. I think that the Christ family probably had great intentions initially. And somewhere along the way, they just took the messages that they felt from the Bible and misinterpreted those and made them something else, something that they weren't necessarily supposed to be. I grew up with them as a child and they entered my life when I was three years old and were pretty um, consistently in my life until I was about 17 years old. Okay. And how did that come to be? My parents picked up some hitchhikers in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1983. And then they came over to my house and I think that they stayed for like a week. My parents, I guess, fell in love with whatever information they were receiving about Christianity and how great it would be for them to be a part of this great new, you know, thing that they were doing. Like Maureen, MJ spoke about the three tenets. No killing, no sex, and no materialism. And so part of the no materialism thing was to get rid of everything we owned. Everything that we had, they just gave away Did you stay with your parents um, once they joined? Were you allowed to be with them? 
Yeah, so we gave up everything that we owned, and then they had us put on white robes. I think it was like sort of to walk the path of Christ, you had to wear white robes. And so white robe, barefoot, and then we hit the road and went to California. And I sort of equate that to what it would be like to be homeless, to live on the streets. Really, they were relying on others for food because they just truly believed that God would provide for them everywhere they went. And so I have lots of memories of us begging for food or digging for food through dumpsters, looking for food. I remember being hungry quite often. I remember going into a city market in Southern California somewhere, and my father had asked the manager or somebody if they had any food that they would be willing to give to them in God's name or something like that. And the manager said no. And so then my father sent me in, and I'm this three-year-old girl wearing white robes going into this small little city market and asking one of the employees if I could have food. And I remember that employee getting so mad at me for asking that question. And I really didn't understand why this woman was so mad at me at the time. But, you know, as a parent, as an adult now, looking back, I realized she wasn't mad at me. She was mad at my family for putting me in these, putting her in those uncomfortable positions where she wasn't able to do something. When I lived in a camp in California, a family had come in that had some young kids too. And the little girl had two barrettes and she gave me pink one and it was like literally the only toy or thing that I had had in quite some time that was mine and as soon as this lead sister found that I had it she made me throw it away I remember her just yelling at me and I I refused and they brought me out into the group I feel like there were like 25 30 40 people standing around watching this event take place where I was stripped of my only possession and and had to throw it away. Was this traumatic for you? It was traumatic. I see. Um, we did camp in the desert. I believe it was near Hemet. We lived there quite a lot. I think they were trying to teach my mother how to be a different kind of parent than she was, because my mother was very mothering of me, always very attentive and loving all of the time. I remember being in the tent at night and it was probably like a full moon or something because it was really bright out and I could see a large spider on the outside of the tent and I was terrified that it was on the inside of the tent and I just screamed and screamed and screamed and my mother wouldn't come because they had told her not to go in because the Lord was keeping me safe. And I, I know I just screamed myself to sleep. MJ then spoke about drug use within the Christ family. They were doing a lot of drugs I know throughout the years. They smoked weed with me when I was three. I remember being in the camp and all of us smoking weed together as a three-year-old. As a three-year-old, um, you smoked marijuana? Yeah, multiple times. My family, my parents would give me a joint. I'm sure that they had taught me how to roll a joint when I was quite young. So I smoked, um, my father smoked bugler cigarettes and he would give me those as well. I was like coughing, smoking, coughing, smoking because I was three and I wanted to be like what everybody else was doing. You know, there was a good majority of members that were drinking and I believe doing other drugs, most likely meth. And so when, when those things, you know, get put into the equation, there tends to be violence. Wow. 
What was the effect of all of this on you? I don't believe that the Christ family is harmless. I would say it completely destroyed my father's life. He was never able to recover from what he had gone through and ended up drinking himself to death. And I think that my mother also struggles from that as well. In 1987, Charles McHugh, Lightning Amen, was sentenced to five years in prison for drug offenses, including the transportation and possession for sale of methamphetamines. $30,000 worth of drugs and a firearm were found in his truck at a police stop in Riverside County, California, the Associated Press reported at the time. In 2001, a man was arrested and charged with three counts of lewd acts against a child. He denied the accusations at the time, calling them crazy and untrue. On August 2, 2002, Amen pleaded guilty to one count of annoying or molesting a child and was placed on three years' summary probation. As a condition of probation, he was required to have no contact with the children involved, according to court records obtained by our team. Amen died in 2010. It was a Sunday evening in late August of 2022 when I got a phone call I wasn't expecting. Hello? Hi, did you call us? Uh, I, I didn't get any messages, but I got your number on our phone. Oh, yes, I did. Um, my name's Christina Corden, and I am an investigative journalist in New York. I had been trying for days to reach current members of the Christ Family Group, calling the very home in Riverside County, where Lightning Amen once lived with his followers. My number appeared on the home's caller ID, and someone there decided to reach out. His name was Gary Christ. Gary was hesitant about speaking to a reporter. He said his group has been misunderstood and vilified by certain media outlets after the Klaus story appeared on the news. I assured him I only had one goal in mind, getting at the truth about the Klauses. I wanted to learn more about the Christ family group and probe any possible connection they might have had to Dean and Tina. I knew at this point that their daughter Holly was left at a church by members of the Christ family. So my interest in speaking with the group was only logical. Gary appeared to understand that. Almost immediately, he said Texas authorities had flown to California to interview him just days prior. He said he did not know Dean and Tina Klaus, and he was adamant in his claim that no one in the group would have committed such a brutal act against the couple. A life of nonviolence, he stressed, was a core principle of the group. The chances of anybody walking with us and being with us that would do anything like that is almost nil. Nothing to do with the actual life that Amen gave us to live, which right. starts with no killing. Gary told me that he lived with Lightning Amen for some 19 years at his ranch in California. My whole relationship with him from the beginning mm -hmm. was from inside in inner communication with Almighty God and totally sovereign and personal. And that's really all of our experiences with individual variants. But yeah. our real knowing of him for all of us has always been from inside 
in a sovereign relationship. I see. How would you describe the group to people who don't know anything about the Christ family? The simplicity of it is we're all sovereign beings here. We all have our individual walks. The way people think and the way we we live and feel is different. So you never you never saw any violence in this group? I've seen everything in this group. But as far as seeing anybody who would do something like that, no. Mm-hmm. No, I've never seen anything like that. I've seen fights. Yeah. I mean, there was a number of years where a man had everybody scattered, and, and a lot of the brothers and sisters really um, got into drugs, got into alcohol, and the behaviors got some, some pretty self-indulgent behaviors in some of the brothers and While Maureen Clark and Gary Christ had opposite views of the Christ family group in many respects, the two asked the same question. A question I hadn't yet considered up until this point. Were Dean and Tina Klaus targeted in a random attack because they belonged to the Christ family? In separate interviews, Maureen and Gary recalled threats of violence they encountered from outsiders as they traveled across the country. Texas was a place a lot of us got our lives threatened. And all of us had times where our lives were threatened on the road. I don't think there is a single brother or sister that hasn't had numerous experiences of guns and knives while trying to kill us. And Texas being especially a a hot spot. I was threatened by the police there to the point of believing that they were ready to kill us. You could not make a brighter target than two people walking down the road in a white robe with a bedroll on shoulder barefoot. You could be in New York City with all the neon and two of us walking in Manhattan on Broadway at, in, the, in the middle of the night with all the traffic and all the people. We would outshine everything going on there, turn every head going by us. As far as anyone in the family actually having done that, I told them, you know, there was no no real organization. Yeah, you could have had a real sicko put on a white robe and, and for some short amount of time. And we've had some troubled people put on robes. I mean, there was no uh, stopping anybody from right. doing that. Yeah, I would tell you that almost unquestionably, there, there, it was done by people who hated us. Amen was used to being shot at and, and all kind of things when we had our camp there at the river. That was not uncommon to people. While well, I was there twice, People came in with guns, with full-on intention to kill us, and especially to kill a man. Wow. I only know of one person who was killed in a pretty horrific manner at the Colorado River, who was in a white robe. But that person was told by a man not to go to this one guy, and he was a, a really, a, he was a sick character, and he'd been threatening the brothers. A man had told the brothers and sisters, you don't go to that guy. You don't, you don't talk to them, you don't go there. And one of the, the brothers didn't listen, you know, and, and he went over there and that guy killed him and, and actually put him on a cross. Oh my God. And- oh, there were a few sisters who were raped. Mm-hmm. And usually they were traveling alone. Most of the sisters have stories where they, people tried to rape them. That did occur. You mean uh, tried raped by up. outsiders oh, yeah. or, or people? There's definitely that- stories of brothers being beat up. Maureen had similar experiences when she was fearful for her safety. One time I was in Hawaii, there was an incident with a motorcycle gang where all of us had to literally run for our lives into the woods. 
And then there was another time there was a car chase that was very threatening and dangerous. There was a gang in New York City that threatened our lives at knife point. And when sometimes we'd be walking down south and beer bottles would come flying at us from, from cars and they'd be swearing at us and just missing our head, breaking, you know, across the, the uh, highway and we're walking barefoot. So that That's wasn't too cool. But I remember there being kind of a, a caution about the Ku Klux Klan because some people mistaken us to be the Klan. Really? And they, yeah, and because of the white robes. And, and so they, they hated us. But then I remember them there being fear of the Klan itself. And I had heard of, you know, the acts of violence that they had done to different groups of people. And so we were told to be very careful and cautious about that. Usually we didn't travel at night when the clan would come out. Usually when the sun went down, before it went down, we'd find our rollout spot. And we'd only be, you know, trucking on the road in the daytime. I but see. I had also heard a, a brother telling me that some members of the clan were very threatening to them. And they actually stole all of their extra white robes. Wow. So there were people on the outside who who mistook you for the clan because of your white robes. And then the clan itself was also a threat to you. Absolutely. The idea that Dean and Tina could have been randomly attacked by outsiders is a plausible theory, but it's a theory that cannot be substantiated with any hard evidence. As I considered the possibility further, I met with someone who knew better than anyone what violent crime was like in the early 80s in Houston. How old are you now? I'm 92 years old. God bless you. You, I thought you were 70. <laughs> I sat with Earl Bockle at his home in Pearland, Texas, on a rainy March afternoon. Earl is a retired homicide detective with the Harris County Sheriff's Department and a living legend in his field. What was crime like in Houston in the early 80s? Well, it wasn't too much better than it is now, fewer people. But uh, it's not a whole lot of difference that I can see. We have more shootings and stuff like that, but the uh, regular homicides and that was pretty well the same. We're doing a story on the unsolved murder of Harold Dean Klaus Jr. and his wife, Tina. They were found in the woods off Wallaceville Road in 1981. You know, a crime like this, the murder of a young couple, does that shock you for Houston in 1981? No, not really. We've had several cases in that area. One of them was cut up and put in bags. And I'm not sure about these people here. I don't remember that case. But uh, in 1981, I think, possibly my partner worked at, I remember talk, people talking about it, but we had several cases out there very similar to it. We have several cases like that, and dismembered bodies, well, we have no idea who they are. One of them I remember for sure is she was pregnant, and 
I watched them take the baby out of her in the morgue, and she hasn't been identified yet. Wow, and what year was that? It was about 82, 3. My meeting with Earl only got more graphic as the hour went on. Earl opened a binder of crime scene photos from the 70s and 80s on his kitchen table, some of them the work of a prolific serial killer. These were Earl's cases, and as he recalled the details of each one, the overall message became clear. Earl Bockel did not consider the Klaus murders such a rarity for a city the size of Houston in the early 80s. And the crime stats appear to support that. In August of 1979, the Washington Post headlined an article, quote, Houston, big and growing fast, has murder rate to match. That same year, the Houston Chronicle declared, Houston, known in the 1950s as the murder capital of the nation, may be on the way to regaining that dubious distinction. And then there was this from the New York Times. In 1970, one in every 16 Houston residents was a victim of a major crime, like homicide, rape, robbery, or assault. By 1980, that number jumped to one in 11 residents. As our team probed the Klaus case further in the weeks ahead, speaking with FBI sources and cult experts, the theories of what happened to Dean and Tina only grew. When cult expert Rick Ross spoke with our producer Evan Goldman, he presented a theory that was the exact opposite of the random attack hypothesis. It should be noted that Ross has not worked directly on the Klaus investigation, and his theory, as he acknowledges, is circumstantial. It's my belief that the Klauses were killed by members of Christ's family, and that is why they had Dean Klaus's car. That is why they had his child. I believe that Dean and Tina Klaus were not willing to continue with the group. They were not with the group a particularly long period of time before they decided, we want out. And that's what I believe happened. Dean Klaus saw things going on, and he decided, I want to get out, get out of here. And McHugh, I think, probably didn't want to let him walk away and share what he knew. Who had Baby Holly? The group. Who had the car? Christ family. It just really is so sad that the people that are responsible for the Klaus's deaths are never probably going to face justice because the key witnesses, McHugh himself, very likely these witnesses are dead and McHugh is dead. And so how are authorities going to find the truth in regards to who killed the Klauses? I would be very, very happy to find out that, that there would be justice. I would like to see justice for the Klauses. It was a horrible thing. They were so young. Uh, Tina Klaus wasn't even 20 years old. Dean was in his early 20s. They had their whole life ahead of them. They had a little girl that they loved. They had a family. They were good people. They did not deserve to be deceived, exploited, and ultimately murdered by some nomadic cult led by a man that I believe 
was a psychopath. Let me be clear on something. My objective wasn't to judge the Christ family group, a religious cult that is more or less defunct today. Instead, I set out to research the group and speak with former members so I could answer one key question. Did this group have any involvement in or knowledge of the murders of Dean and Tina Klaus? That was the only truth I cared about. And at this point in my investigation, I had no hard evidence linking the group to the murders. The Christ family has not been implicated by authorities in any wrongdoing or charged with any crime in connection with the case. I felt like I was hitting a wall. I couldn't track down any Christ family members, past or present, who even knew Dean and Tina's names. But that was about to change. Coming up in episode eight, my exclusive interview with Christ family member, Sister Susan, the mysterious woman named by authorities in their probe of Dean and Tina's murders. Dean and Tina, when they joined the Christ family, they gave their life. We laid our lives down. We knew what was gonna happen. And hear what she claims happened to baby Holly. It was a free will choice. Nobody made anybody do anything. That's next on What About Holly? Listen to What About Holly ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.